Good morning. morning. It is a new day here at Cornerstone. We dismiss the children up through fifth grade, but last week was Move Up Sunday, so as I look around this room, I see some sixth graders who weren't here last week. Let's welcome the sixth graders. If you're new to Cornerstone Church, you can keep your children in the service. Uh, Noise from a child can be a worshipful, beautiful, joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, We don't mind a little noise, a little rustling, a little movement uh, here during the worship service. You're free to keep your children with you the entire time. But we do have children's ministry, junior church in the back, up through fifth grade. Well, as the children are making their way back, will you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Every fall season, usually from Labor Day weekend until the Advent season, we pick back up where we left off last year in a gospel. As a church, we've made it all the way through Mark, and now we're in John. And today we're starting off at the beginning of John 17. We'll be looking at the first eight verses this morning, and uh, we'll spend a few months working through John 17 and 18, and we'll see how far we get. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've reprinted the verses on the back of the bulletin, and it will also be on the screen behind me. Well, as we say, welcome to our sixth graders. Uh, Now, sixth graders, uh, you're going to be here for the sermon portion of our worship service. And uh, let me give you a little bit of advice. This is new for you because most of the different ways you listen to adults are not 35 straight minutes of them talking. You've got teachers or you have homeschool or you watch some videos that aren't usually that long. So, sixth graders. I'm going to pray for you in a minute. And uh, why don't you pray for yourself that God would give you the encouragement and patience and endurance to sit through a sermon. As you are interacting and listening to the message, uh, what if you jot down one question that you have about the scripture passage? and Maybe talk to a parent or a pastor about it. Or maybe you want to write down one thing that you hear in the sermon that was helpful or confusing. It's okay. This is God's Word, and we love it, and we feast on it each week. But sixth graders, it's good to have you in the room. God will use His Word to change your life. At the beginning of John 17, where are we at in the story? Uh, This is the beginning of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. On the night before Good Friday, on the night Jesus was betrayed, He takes some time out, and this is his prayer. So here's our question as we start off John 17. When it's all on the line, when the biggest moment in history is about to happen, when Jesus knows the grueling next 12 to 16 hours he is going to face, his arrest, his trial, they mock him, they beat him, they torture him, they execute him. In the face of that, What does Jesus pray? Who is Jesus thinking of? What words are formed on the lips of our Savior right before it all goes down? We're going to see in John 17. Let me pray first, and then I'll read verses 1 through 8. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, thank you for today. It's a gift from you. 
I thank you for your word. Without it, we wouldn't know how to live. We wouldn't know how to love. We wouldn't know how to serve. We wouldn't know how to forgive. But you love, you serve, and you forgive. And in your word, you teach us how Jesus did that and how we can do that because we've been loved first. We've been served first. And we've been forgiven first. Thank you for the sixth graders in the church and in the room today. Will you give them endurance to listen to the preaching of your word? Give them great joy as they hear from you personally the words you have for them. Lord, as we open your word now, give us all eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and hearts to receive it, whatever it is you have in store for us. Help us receive it by grace through faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. John chapter 17. I will read the first eight verses. This is the good and glorious words and prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. The words and prayer of our Lord. Well, this is not a short prayer. We don't have time today to even look at the whole prayer. It's a, a long prayer, this prayer of Jesus Maybe you're new to Christianity and you've heard of the Lord's Prayer. That's like a, a model, some categories for us to learn how to pray that Jesus teaches his disciples. We call that the Lord's Prayer, but Pastor Ari and I were talking this week and he said, you know, this is really the Lord's Prayer. This is how Jesus prays when he prays. This is the final prayer of Jesus before he goes into the passion, goes into the arrest, the trial, all the grueling day ahead of him. He's about to face a terrible, horrible, no good, difficult day, and he's going to willingly offer up his life for the sins of the world. So it's a long prayer. Today we're looking at just the first eight verses, and we've got two sections to look at to help us categorize and, and work through this material. First in verses 1 through 5, we're going to call that the hour has come. Verses 1 through 5, the beginning of the prayer we could call the hour has come. And then in verses 6 through 8, we can call that mission nearly accomplished. Mission 
nearly accomplished. First, verses 1 through 5 of this glorious prayer of our Lord. The hour has come. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, stop there, he's had a night with his disciples, he, he's given them the Lord's Supper, he's, he's talked to them about what's going to happen, they don't quite get it, they're a little confused, they're, he's talking of being betrayed, they're a little bit scared. Uh, this is the Last Supper, this is later in the evening. So when Jesus had spoken these words, well now he goes to pray. Verse 1 again, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Let's stop there. The hour has come. Jesus knew what time it was. It was go time. And the entire story of the Bible, since we broke it, and there's over a thousand chapters in the Bible, and we break the whole world in chapter three, right? <laughs> we break the whole world in chapter three. It get, we get to chapter three before we break it. So from Genesis three, we're waiting. When is God going to solve the problem of sin, of Satan, of death, of failure, of brokenness, of pain, of suffering, of victims? When? Well, now is that time. When the Redeemer of the world not only arrives on the scene, but he is going to accomplish redemption. It was a really big moment. Jesus is in one of those really big moments. Some of you have had really big moments recently, or this year, or maybe in the last few years, when it's time to walk into the boss's office, and you just, you, you're just going in, and there's, there's a weight on your shoulders. You don't really sleep the night before. Or maybe you go into the courtroom and, and that week, that whole week was this grueling mental battle. I'm getting ready for that moment. Or maybe it was a doctor's office. Maybe it was facing a difficult trial. Maybe it was making that difficult phone call and you just kept, you had the number ready and you just couldn't hit go. You couldn't hit send. You couldn't hit call because you were just straining. Uh, this is going to be so hard. Or maybe you've had one of those conversations with a friend or a loved one. And you have to hijack the conversation with a phrase like this. I need to tell you something. I have to say something really hard. You know what those moments are like. In those moments, we people, we humans, have all different kinds of thoughts rushing through our heads. Sometimes it's, I guess I have to go. I guess it's time to go in. Or, well, here goes nothing. Or, fingers crossed, or Lord have mercy. Where, though, do Christ's thoughts go? Where does Jesus' heart go when the hour has come? The answer is, he goes to prayer. Where does Jesus go in that moment? His thoughts and heart are entirely focused on his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father. He goes to prayer. His mind goes to the Father. His heart leaps to the Father. He is concerned with a singular thing, his relationship with the Father. And all of this talk, as I read those verses, all this talk of God's sovereignty, it's sort of a contrast to a time of prayer, isn't it? Look back at the verses now, 1 through 8, and let me point out some of the tenses, and they're all past tense. Spoiler alert. In verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Past tense. Look at verse 2 now in the middle of it. To all whom you have given. 
Verse 4, in verse 4, having accomplished. In verse 6, I have manifested. Later in verse 6, you gave them to me. Verse 8, I have given them. Verse 8 later, they have received. These are the words of past tense. It's the language of accomplished. This is the language that Jesus knows God's sovereign will has been and will be done in this moment. In this moment, the language is the one of accomplished. Jesus knew that the hour had come. Jesus knew that the Father knew the hour had come. Jesus knows that the Father chose the hour. They weren't caught off guard by it. And he knows that both he and the Father and the Holy Spirit will finish the task of redemption. So when Jesus is praying this prayer, think about it. There are zero unknowns. There are zero question marks for Jesus. There will be zero glitches in the plan. It is going to happen. There's no hesitation. Perfect execution is going to happen. And yet with all of that sovereignty, with all of that blessed assurance Jesus had, with all the past tense verbs used, what does Jesus do? He prays. And we're tempted to ask when we see Jesus praying in a moment like this, isn't prayer mostly for unknown times, for times of insecurity, for confusing times, for feeble times, for wavering times? Well, no. Jesus doesn't have any confusion. He's not wavering. He has no unknowns. Prayer, more than anything else, is fellowship. It's relationship. So even though the outcome is certain, he still prays. And he models that for us. As you pray this week, facing whatever you're facing, remember that the relationship with the Father, God, is the most important part of that prayer. It's not the outcome of those prayers. It's not whether or not God hears and answers specifically and immediately. It is the fellowship. This is what Jesus does in moments like that. And Jesus is not praying about small things. He's praying about big things in this prayer. He's not being selfish. And his prayer when the hour had come was that everything would happen in the next day for the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son and for the good of the world. Jesus' prayer is this, Lord, make everything happen for your glory and the glory of the Son himself and for the good of the world. That's Jesus' thoughts. This is a glorious prayer. And Jesus is like us in some ways, right? He's praying before a big moment, but he's also unlike us in other ways. His focus is always on the Father. His purpose is always the glory of the Father. And this really stands out today, doesn't it? When we see Jesus and when we worship him, and if you're going to worship Jesus this week, you really want to see who he truly is. And he, in a world like ours, is such a contrast The world we're living in today, we could call it expressive individualism. We're all being told to be true to ourselves. Every device, every service we subscribe to is training us to view ourselves as if we live at the center of the universe. We're told that our voice is the most important voice in the world. Everyone in the world needs to hear what we think about foreign relations. Canadian law, gas prices, or how to improve airport travel. We're learning to think that we are the main character in the story, and everything around us is fine-tuning us to not think about others, but to think about ourselves. And so it's so refreshing, isn't it, to see Jesus step into our world full of selfish people like us, and he being the total opposite of us in this moment. 
I saw a new version of expressive individualism this week, and I really almost couldn't believe it, okay? And if this was you, you're forgiven. All right, here's what I saw. So uh, I went into the grocery store. We had to pick up some things late one night. It was like 9 o'clock. I'm at the grocery store. And you know how in the grocery store they have that music playing in the background, right? Soft music playing in the background. Someone evidently likes those songs. It's not my kind of music. But I'm grabbing my things, and I get to the checkout line, and I hear another song. And it's playing really loud. And I'm like, where is that? Because I also heard the store music. So somebody has their phone attached to their hip, no headphones or anything, and they're blasting their favorite song in the checkout line. And I thought, this person thinks that we are all side characters in their story. What in the world is going on? Well, we live in a world that tells you and tells me to think only about yourself. Everyone else is just a side character in your story. Expressive individualism. The lie says that it's going to bring out your true beauty, your true self, but actually it doesn't make you more beautiful because you're being brave. It makes you radically self-centered. And so you don't even care that maybe not everyone else in the checkout line wanted to hear that song. Well, Jesus is the antidote to selfish hearts like ours. The way of Christ and the way of his people, Christians, is radical others-centeredness. And now think about what Jesus was facing when he prays and when he's just thinking about others. Everyone would have understood if he were a little worried about what he was about to face. But he is others-centered. He is concerned with the Father's glory. Look again at verse 1. Think about his thoughts here. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That line there, glorify your Son, he's talking about himself, the Son of God, that the Son may glorify you. We can call this reciprocal glory. Jesus is glorifying, honoring, cherishing, adoring the Father with his life by obedience even to dying on the cross. And the Father is going to glorify the Son on Good Friday by magnifying, celebrating, and honoring the work of Jesus so that the whole world can see who he was. So by both of their words and actions, the Father and the Son are elevating the glorious attributes of one another. This is love. This is fellowship. A glory, reciprocal glory relationship. Uh, Peek ahead at verses 4 and 5 now. Same language. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is what's going on. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, before the creation of the world, had a loving community. Father and Son and Spirit, giving and receiving love giving and receiving glory, praising one another for their glorious attributes before the beginning of the world. And then they invite us into that loving community. And so what Jesus is doing now, as he's praying right before the big thing happens, he is remembering the triune fellowship that he has, and he's asking for God the Father to make sure that the mission is accomplished so that you and I 
can be invited into that loving community of giving and receiving love, of giving and receiving glory. We'll see that invitation for us into that loving community a lot more next week as we continue the prayer, but it's already on his mind. I glorified you, now glorify me. Glory, 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 glory. But for our portion today, the hour has come. The moment of highest significance in the whole universe. If you're watching a movie on TV, something we used to do when I was a kid, there were commercial breaks. This would have been the moment right before the big commercial break, right? This would have been the moment, the big moment in the history of the universe. And Jesus prays because this prayer is not just a prayer of communication to God. He is preparing for the moment on Good Friday when redemption would be accomplished. Redemption accomplished for you and for me. Look again at verse 2 and 3 now. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to do what? What is this moment about? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Father gives Jesus authority to give eternal life. It wasn't going to be free, of course. It was going to cost him his life. But Jesus now has the authority to do it. And this brings us to a major question. What Jesus is going to accomplish is going to let you and I have eternal life. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? Well, Jesus prays about it. He says eternal life. The word eternal is pretty easy. It means everlasting, forever. It means it's not going to end. Pretty simple word. But the word life is actually more complicated than that. When the Bible talks of the life that Jesus gives us by grace through faith in him, that eternal life is not just um, more time. It's not just the word for a length of time. Jesus is not saying, I'll give you extra days at the end of the calendar. Now, it is that, but it's so much more. The word for life there is the word for a quality of life. It's the word for a knowledge of God, a relationship with God. And the Greek word there is zoe, or as we say in English, zoe. Uh, It's not bios, where we get biology. Bios is the word for you're breathing today, you're alive. That animal is breathing today, the animal is alive. Biology, that's bios. That's not what Jesus is offering. He's offering eternal Zoe. In fact, my daughter's middle name is Zoe because of this. Jesus promises for his people abundant life, joyous life, knowledgeable life, fruitful life. This abundant Zoe, this abundant life is why the whole book of John was written. You don't have to uh, go there now, but in John 20, verse 31, John, who wrote the gospel, tells us why he wrote the whole book. He says this, but these are written, the whole gospel is written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life. It's Zoe, it's abundant life through his name. That's what Jesus was accomplishing for his people. Let me tell you more about this word Zoe. What is eternal life? Jesus is about to purchase it with his own blood for us. What is it? In one Bible encyclopedia, it says this for the definition of the word. Zoe, and this is what Jesus is offering you if you believe in him. Life real and genuine. A life 
active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed both now in this life and perfectly in the life to come. Almost everyone knows John 3.16. Guess what word is there? You guessed it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal what? Life. That's not bios. It's not more breathing. It's abundant life. It's knowledge. It's relationship. It's purity. It's joy. It's hope. It's encouragement. That's what Jesus was about to purchase for you and everyone who has called on his name. And he says it in this prayer, verse 3 in John 17. And this is eternal life. What is it? Define it. Jesus, tell us. He tells us that they, us, followers of Jesus, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So knowing God is abundant life. Do you want the real life? Do you want the beautiful life? Do you want the big old life that everyone tells you you can get with all their products? You can't get it there. You can't buy it on Amazon. It's on no social media app. It's knowing God. Having a relationship with Jesus is the source of abundant life. And Jesus had this abundant life relationship forever past and forever forward with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he was going to die so that we could have life. Amen? That life that Jesus had, now that the hour has come, he was going to die so that you and I could have everything he had, the abundant life. So that's part one of his prayer, verses one through five, the hour has come. Well, what's the rest of his prayer in verses six through eight this morning? Let's call it mission nearly accomplished. Verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So Jesus has, by his words and actions, revealed God to this world. And God has become manifestly clear. Maybe you've heard this before from someone. Has anyone ever asked you, well, why doesn't God just show up and prove that he exists? Raise your hand if you've ever heard someone ask that question. Kids ask it a lot. What is the answer to the question? Why doesn't God just show up and prove that he exists? The answer is, he did He has already come. He has already shown up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 6. I have done it. I manifested your name. Well, let's continue in verse 6. Yours they were. Now he's talking about his disciples and his followers. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, verse 7, that they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth, in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. All right, three brief moves happen here. As Jesus understands what his ministry was and what he was doing. First, in these verses, God's word is given to Jesus. God's word is given to Jesus. Right? He says that in verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave to me. So Jesus did 
everything he was supposed to do. Every word he was supposed to communicate to the world, he gave us. And it wasn't just his words, but it was his actions, his healing, his loving, his forgiving, and his act of redemption that he was about to engage in. So God's word is given to Jesus. That's point one. Point two, Jesus communicates God's word to us. Jesus communicates God's word to us. Look at verse 6 in the middle. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So God has a people that were supposed to receive these words, and they are the ones who call on the name of Jesus for salvation. If you have trusted in the name of Jesus, you are one of those people. You are one of the ones Jesus was thinking of. He lived his life for you. He spoke God's words for you. He has given you his life and his testimony. And now we have his completed holy word. So God gave his words to Jesus, God the Father, to the Son. And Jesus gave all of that to us. And finally, third in these verses... We disciples of Jesus receive and believe. We receive and believe. The Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to us, and we receive and believe. We see that in the language of verse 8. Everything Jesus said and did, we receive that by grace through faith in Jesus. However, the mission isn't accomplished yet. It's the night Jesus was betrayed. All the big hard stuff is about to come. The arrest, the trial, the beating, the torture, the execution, the mockery, the tomb. That was going to come because one thing remained, one action, one kept promise. The triune God was going to keep the very first promise ever made. You don't have to turn there, but God's a promise keeper. And the first promise was in Genesis 3. There are a series of promises God makes, and he makes them in light of the fact that we broke the whole thing. So there's a promise for Adam and a promise for Eve. And then in Genesis 3, verse 15, God is talking to the serpent who tricked humanity, our first parents, into sinning. And God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, so all of the humans. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's that promise. The first Adam failed. Our first parents sinned. So we were born into sin with no hope apart from Christ, with no Redeemer, with no sweet fellowship with God because of our sins, with no Zoe life, with no eternal life, with none of that definition I read earlier. A life real and genuine. Because of sin, we don't have a real and genuine life. A life active and vigorous. Because of sin, our life is inactive. It's not vigorous. It's painful. It's struggle. It's fraught with complications. Our relationships are hard. It's a life devoted to God, but because of our sin, we've separated ourselves from God. It's a life that's blessed because of our sin, we're cursed. Both now and perfectly in the life to come, but because of our sins, We've eaten from dirty buffets. We've drunk dirty water. We have not drunk from the well of everlasting life that the Father offers. And the world wants to do that. The world promises us life. If we just look inside of our hearts and be true to ourselves, then we'll find the true life. 
But what we find because of sin is that the true life has to come from the outside, from a Savior, from a Redeemer, from the one as we sang about who cancels sin. And this prayer in John 17 from Jesus is wrapping all of that together in this prayer. He's thinking of the Father, and he's thinking of you and me. He wants reciprocal glory with the Father and himself and the Spirit, and he wants us to be given eternal life, to be invited into that life, the eternal Zoe, abundant life. And it's also a consecrating prayer. As we'll see, Jesus is preparing himself as the final sacrifice. He's preparing himself to be the high priest to offer the final sacrifice. And he's preparing us to receive and believe in his name, that by his sacrifice, we might receive eternal life. It's the big moment. Jesus knows what he's about to face. It is going to be the most painful, grueling, incredibly difficult assignment any human being has ever been given. All the more impossibly hard because Jesus had never known sin, but he was going to bear the wrath of our sins. Knowing all of that, Jesus is thinking about us, inviting us into that eternal life relationship. Look again at verse 3 as we come to a close. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So friends, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Who are you trusting to pay for your sins, you or Jesus? Who is your Redeemer? Who's cleaning up your story? Where is your hope? Is your hope in you or is your hope in another? And this week, as you pray, and as you think about John 17, this is the key to worship. As we worship Jesus, we want to worship him for who he really was. And when the big moment came, Jesus is praying that the Father would be glorified and that you and I would get eternal life. We watch how Jesus prays, and we watch how Jesus loves. So what do we do as we go through John 17 and as we worship this week? How are we going to apply this message We just need to fix our eyes on Jesus each day. He, the completely others-centered human, is the solution and the antidote to our selfish hearts and all of our sins. So we fix our eyes on him. From Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. How? Verse 2 of Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, I'm not going to say the next word yet, remember what he was about to face, remember what he was about to go through, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is Jesus seated at the right hand of God right now? Because when the hour had come, Jesus prayed. And then he went to the cross the next day, and on the cross he said, it is finished. He did it. 
so that you, by believing in him, might have eternal, abundant life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, the hour had come. And our Savior Jesus prayed that you would be glorified and that you would glorify him and that we would receive the eternal life that by grace through faith you offered to us. And you accomplished your purpose. And Jesus faithfully accomplished the plan. And the Holy Spirit faithfully applies all that a triune God accomplished for us. So we thank you for that. Help us this week look at the prayer of Jesus and see who he was and how he lived and how he loved. Help us love others like he loved. Help us pray like he prayed. And help us receive and believe as he prayed that we would be able to receive and believe. Help us know you more today so that we might know the eternal Zoe life that you have given to us for free by grace through faith in Christ. Help us not only live in that life of love, but help us share that good news with the world around us, a world that needs to see that there was a Savior who died to set them free. In Christ's name we pray.